You look like you're having fun in this race. Yeah, uh, I have been having a blast. Uh, it's been tremendous meeting thousands of Americans around the country. Uh, and if the upstart candidate who's overachieving and shocking the world can't have fun, who can? <laughs> hey, I'm John Harwood, host of CNBC's Speakeasy podcast, and that's Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang. We caught up with the maverick surprise of the 2020 race in New York City over pastries and bubble tea. Yang's a former lawyer who became wealthy as an entrepreneur, then spent recent years boosting startups through Venture for America, a nonprofit he founded. We talked about what's wrong with 21st century American capitalism and why he thinks his $1,000 a month freedom dividend is a first step toward fixing it. One of the things that's appealing about you as a candidate is that you seem pretty normal. Oh, thank you. You're doing something that's very abnormal, uh, running for president. Yeah, that's true. So of all the ways you can serve, and we're serving, through the Venture for America that you started, why did you pick this one, running for president, running for a job that by most conventional um, measures, you're not really ready for? Well, I spent seven years helping train hundreds of entrepreneurs and helping to create thousands of jobs around the country with uh, this nonprofit that I founded, Venture for America. And uh, I started that organization because I felt like our country was heading in the wrong direction in terms of its energies and the way our economy looked. And when Donald Trump got elected in 2016, I took that as uh, a red flag that it was getting even worse faster than I thought. And when I dug into the numbers, I was shocked to see that we'd automated away millions of manufacturing jobs in the swing states that Trump won. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that now we're closing 30% of stores and malls and being a retail clerk is the most common job in the economy. My friends in California are working on cars and trucks that can drive themselves and driving a truck is the most common job in 29 mm -hmm. states. So when you see this playing out and you see our country is confused about it, our country is blaming immigrants for something that immigrants have next to nothing to do with, mm -hmm. and then you game out how you can uh, get meaningful solutions across the finish line in a reasonable time frame, let's call it five to ten years, and I'd run a successful national nonprofit, and I saw what we can and can't do at that scale. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's that bleak? I do. The market is going to zero out more and more of us over time. Uh, and we can pretend that it's still like, oh, as long as I work hard and like, you know, play by the rules, everything is going to be fine. But one of the examples I use is, look, the robot truck doesn't care if you're a good, conscientious truck driver or a sloppy, terrible one. It's all the same. You know, the technology doesn't care if you're a really diligent radiologist uh, or like a not so diligent one. We can still just read the film better with software. So we have to try and uh, evolve as quickly as possible. There's a, a lot to be done. Now, when you think about what you see happening and the elimination of opportunity on a pretty gigantic scale, uh, is that capitalism's fault? Or is it the particular intersection of capitalism and 21st century technology. I like to quote my friend Eric Weinstein who said we never knew that capitalism was going to get eaten by its son technology. And the fact is capitalism is not designed to optimize our well-being. It's designed to optimize for capital efficiency. Mm -hmm. And so if technology comes along that can do work cheaper and better than we can, then capitalism loves it. And uh, in the old days we made all of these assumptions that what was good for capital ended up being good for us. Mm -hmm. Because if you had a big successful company, it would hire lots of workers, it would treat them well, it would care about what's happening in its uh, home city. 
And now in the 21st century, those things aren't true anymore. I can start a big, successful company, not hire a lot of people. If I do hire them, I can make them all temp and gig contract workers and Uber drivers and not give them benefits. And I don't care about what happens in my backyard because I'm selling to everyone. And so the fundamentals that we assume to be true about capitalism are now breaking down, and technology is the accelerant. As you see uh, modern capitalism, is it immoral uh, in the way it functions right now? It is doing what it's designed to do. And so you would consider it moral if you cared more about capital than human beings, mm -hmm. which I would suggest you'd have to be fairly demented <laughs> to, to go to this money pile and say, yes, we're serving you money pile, and then you know, the people will be like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, uh, we can ignore them. Now, where does it fit in the moral equation that uh, the modern version of capitalism has dramatically reduced global poverty? As you suggested, I'm a capitalist. I'm mm -hmm. a fan. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's nothing more powerful than markets at optimizing uh, where we put resources, and that includes people as well as capital. Uh, at the same time, you're going to uh, see these global capital flows also change as advanced technology comes on online. And you're seeing not just the mechanization of American work, but you're now starting to see it applied in other parts of the world. So this is an American problem, but it's also a global problem. It's a human problem. Right. Some of your opponents in the race uh, have cast this as a, a human problem, uh, particular humans, Wall Street humans, CEOs, um, and that their uh, decisions to uh, embrace maximization of their own wealth and influence and power, um, uh, greed, as Bernie Sanders talks about, is a big part of the problem. Do you agree with that? Well, I think that we've gone overboard in financializing our economy. Uh, it's become the tail wagging the dog. Uh, and I think that Wall Street has been very effective at accelerating that financialization. Um, at the same time, we have the incentives that we have. Uh, and so to the extent that we need to, to turn it around, we need to change everyone's incentives. The companies- so You're not faulting major figures on Wall Street for behaving badly. Well, there, there were excesses, to be sure, and the financial crisis uh, is something that I think the country is still recovering from. Mm -hmm. And the financial crisis actually had me uh, start Venture for America in mm -hmm. response because I saw that literally my friends <laughs> were uh, creating financial instruments that had tanked the economy. Uh, to me, the vision that if we just scrape profits back from Wall Street, all will be well, uh, to me, does not take into account the magnitude of the economic transformation that we're in the midst of. You have a, a particular appeal to young people, I think. What would you tell them about why capitalism and not socialism? Well, what I would say to them is, I get it, that if you come of age in this era and you just see this distorted version of capitalism, this inhuman version of capitalism, you would think, give me anything that's the opposite of this. Mm -hmm. And so they're being very rational and sensible. Uh, what we can do, ideally, is channel the energies of capitalism mm -hmm. towards our own well-being, towards our own health and life expectancy, our mental health and freedom from substance abuse, uh, how clean our air and water are, how our kids are doing. And then if we had different measurements, aside from stock market prices and GDP, then we could take the best of capitalism and, and turn it towards things that we can all get excited about. Mm -hmm. So that's the vision of what I call human capitalism that I would pitch to young people. You get it, but you would say clearly and affirmatively that democratic socialism as uh, enunciated by somebody like Bernie Sanders or 
AOC is just flat wrong. That's the wrong model. Well, I think we need a positive economic vision that people can get excited about. Um, I do not think pure socialism is that vision. Um, but at this point, I also think that you need to take the best of any uh, camp to solve the problems of this era. We don't have pure anything right now. But. Exactly. And that, that's part of it, too. That's one reason why I find the dichotomy so unproductive, that there's no such thing as pure capitalism or pure socialism. And then people are just trying to throw others into an ideological bucket to uh, dismiss them. Um, and if you look at any system throughout the world, uh, there's some combination. So let's talk about universal basic income. When I talk to democratic economists, they say um, it's the wrong incentives, uh, that what we want to do is have a tax system that encourages work and assists people who need help. I talked to Greg Mankiw, uh, who was a George W. Bush uh, chief economist, and he said, if you want to have substantial uh, redistribution of income, which I don't necessarily favor, but I understand that many people do, the UBI is a very efficient and effective way to do that. I would suggest that the freedom dividend is bipartisan. And if you look at Alaska's experience, where now everyone in Alaska is getting between one and $2,000 a year in oil money, they love it. Uh, and that's a deep red conservative state. On the Democratic side, it's going to make our children and families healthier, stronger, mentally healthier, more productive. And so, to me, the citizens of this country should be in the same place as shareholders of a company. Um, and that's something that I do think I need to explain more fully to Democrats for them to understand it more, more deeply and naturally. What about the incentive issue, though? The idea that, um, that government, as a, a policy statement, um, ought to be uh, reinforcing and uh, encouraging uh, work so that, for example, instead of a universal basic income, much larger earned income tax credit, that sort of thing. I'm a huge fan of work. I think it's integral to the human experience. Uh, I do think, though, that my wife is working harder than I am, and my wife is at home with our two boys, um, one of whom is autistic, and a work incentive program would not recognize that. So I would suggest that having a narrow conception of work is not necessarily going to help us in the 21st century economy. I love the EITC, um, but I think a dividend is a better way to go. When you talk about sums that enormous, isn't targeting relevant? Well, the people that benefit the most from our society would end up paying into the system uh, at a higher level than $1,000 a month. And so the joke I tell is that if we get hundreds of millions from Jeff Bezos and then try and send him $1,000 a month to remind him he's an American, <laughs> like, like that, that's not something we should be concerned about. It's possible to make uh, people understand that trade-off? I think the benefits of universality uh, are uh, easily understood, where it seems fair, all Americans can get behind it, some advocates of universal basic income, uh, especially more conservative ones, want to get rid of uh, the whole suite of poverty programs and, and other incentive programs that we have. Would you do that too? I would not. Um, my vision of the freedom dividend is that it's universal and an opt-in, but if you opt-in, then you're foregoing benefits that uh, are accruing from certain other programs. So if you're receiving uh, housing benefits and heating um, uh, benefits and SNAP and some other things, then you would look at it and say, like, do I prefer $1,000 cash to these benefits? Uh, so you are having people choose between existing benefits they have or the $1,000? Uh, 
Yes. And, and that would enable you to wind down some of those other programs. It would reduce enrollment and subscriptions in some of these other programs. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why um, I'm uh, convinced that Americans would be excited about this is when I talk to people who are on these programs, they live in fear of losing their benefits mm -hmm. um, because they don't fill out the right form, they have case managers, um, they're, they're very anxious about the bureaucracy. Um, and so if you're anywhere near $1,000 in benefits and I say, hey, guess what, $1,000 unconditional cash, they would jump on that um, relative to their current benefits. The Republican economists I talked to uh, who praised the efficiency of what you proposed contrasted it with uh, the wealth tax that Sanders and Warren have talked about and said that it just won't work. It won't raise the money. It will trigger a lot of evasion. There are measurement problems. Do you agree with that? Do you, th do you think the wealth tax is a, is a bad idea? I think the wealth tax is an idea and spirit that makes sense given the uh, wealth distribution, but in practice it would have massive implementation problems. There would be capital flight. Uh, wealthy people would renounce their citizenship. Um, and the bigger problem isn't even the money, it's the annual inventorying of their assets. That uh, the truly wealthy in this country have zero interest in submitting uh, to an annual audit of all of their assets. Um, they barely know <laughs> what all their assets are. And the last thing they're going to do is report them every year and then pay a toll. So you would have massive compliance problems. Um, and to me, there are, there are better ways to, to make this economy fair. Though I understand the spirit of it and the intent of it, but I agree that it would be uh, somewhere between problematic and a disaster in practice. You've talked about the uh, shortage of entrepreneurship in our current economy, the rate of business startups, that sort of thing. Do you, how do you actually envision uh, the freedom dividend changing that, or would it? It would change it fundamentally, John, because you know what doesn't happen in entrepreneurship very often? Someone being on their last legs, they can't pay their bills, and then they say, I'm going to start a business. <laughs> That's actually not the normal uh, way it happens. It's more common that you have a little bit of security, like a little bit of uh, risk-taking capacity, and then you say, you know what, I, I want to take a chance on this business. And, and, and the other thing is that we're going to have more money in our hands to actually fuel local businesses. So you think rather than uh, discouraging work, encouraging leisure, it would actually do the opposite uh, and spur um, uh, uh, scrappy, young, scrappy, and hungry uh, uh, business owners? Yes. I mean, the Roosevelt Institute forecasts that it would create up to two million new jobs in our communities. And it's not just the new businesses. The money would go to daycare and car repairs we've been putting off and Little League sign-ups and local nonprofits, and all those organizations would end up hiring uh, more people. So this is the trickle-up economy from our people and our communities up. And this would create many, many new jobs. One of the fundamental misconceptions about the Freedom Dividend is that it somehow uh, mitigates work. It's going to create work, and it's also going to recognize the work we're doing. Somebody who knows you told me that your goal in entering this race was to focus the nation and get the nation to pay more attention to this problem. How do you judge your success in doing that so far? Well, certainly I think we've already opened a, a lot of eyes, uh, but I'm a solutions-oriented person, and so saying, hey, there's a problem, and then going home being like, oh, I did it, is not that productive. So I'm going to judge my own success by whether I can improve that person's life directly, uh, not whether you know, uh, I spread some ideas around. Obviously, we've had a lot of developments on the impeachment front over the last uh, couple of days, and you have said you think that's a correct way to go. If the Congress does go down that path, that's going to dominate the political discussion for quite a long time. 
to the extent you want to focus the nation's attention on the future of work and problems associated with the future of work, is that a negative thing? That's a great question. Uh, I do think impeachment's the right way to go. I, I think the Trump-centered uh, media narrative is generally not helpful for us solving the problems that got Donald Trump elected because there's a real democratic... Uh, uh, tendency to say Trump is the embodiment of all of our problems and if we just get him out then the problems go away. But Trump's leaving office will not restore the 30% of stores and malls that are closing. It will not keep the three and a half Negative million. infrastructure you've called it. <laughs> yeah. The, it, we're going to go, f- I mean, uh, a mall can go from being a pillar of the community to the source of blight, like if you empty it out. So it doesn't fill up the mall. It doesn't keep the three and a half million truckers in their jobs when the robot trucks come and hit the highways, and they're already on some highways. Uh, so the, the real problems of the fourth industrial revolution, the greatest economic transformation in our history, brought Donald Trump into office, and they do not disappear when he leaves office. This is what the Democrats have to uh, dig into and say, okay, um, if we address the root causes, then we have a chance. If we treat the symptom like it's the source of the problems in Donald Trump, um, then unfortunately things are just going to get worse underneath our feet. I think anybody objectively would look at the situation and say it's uh, unlikely that this campaign's going to end with Andrew Yang as president. Um, if that, in fact, is what happens, what's next for you? The problems are not going away. Uh, I'm an American, a patriot, a parent. I'm just going to do all I can to solve the problems. If that's as president, fantastic. If that's in some other capacity, I'm sure there will be a lot of work to do. Well, that's it for this episode of Speakeasy. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Speakeasy was produced by M.C. Wellens and Pat Anastasi. Editing by Jeff Dills. Oh, and by the way, don't forget to rate the podcast and leave us your feedback. Is there a political figure you'd like to see us interview? We'd love to hear from you. So please share your ideas in the comments. Talk soon. Talk soon.